0: This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, Colin Hansen, and the ever-mysterious, often glitchy, but never-underestimated... Is that right, Justin Taylor. Justin, are you with us? I believe that I am. Yes. Yes. Nice. They I think have. We make
1: a thirty for thirty about me trying to connect to the network. <laughs> what if I told you that a grown man <laughs> in Sioux City, Iowa?
0: <laughs> well, the networks run on ethanol, there, isn't it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> God bless. Prices have been awful lately. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so thirty for thirty. Speaking of, have you guys seen, after the Jordan one, did you watch the Lance Armstrong or yesterday the uh, the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Colin?
2: I was too busy trying to read books, so I'd have something to say on this podcast, Kevin.
1: <laughs> no, I missed those. Injustice? No. No. Yeah, after basketball and football, my interest in sports drops off considerably in fact i i think i was unaware of Maguire and sosa when it was happening is how that that, that can't no be, no that can't be true i mean if you told me like those guys played at the same time i would say what that's i didn't know
0: that that's plausible yeah. <laughs> that was one of the greatest sports stories of our generation So is it is the 30 for 30 about who did more steroids or is it about something else <laughs> it's 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 actually not very much about steroids but it's it's about the home run chase in the summer of 1998 and how that saved baseball and uh the two guys were i mean they they were they were good to each other and it was a feel good story and uh yeah it's, it's great and they they talk about well it was all fake but you know it's not fake to hit a, be- a baseball i mean there was actually some uh, I, I'll wax a little metaphysical. At one point, Mark McGuire, I don't know what sort of religious faith he did talk about the, the man upstairs. and <laughs> that's, that's usually a good sign. Yeah, right. Uh, the Trinitarian man upstairs. <laughs> yeah. He did say, he said, you know, I, I feel like God puts us on this earth for a purpose and we spend a lot of life just trying to figure out what that purpose is. And I knew from an early age. The one thing I could do better than anybody was hit a baseball really far. So there's some self awareness there. And then his dealer said, "God put me on the planet." To give you Andro. Have they
1: both admitted it, or they both say like, "No, I just was taking vitamin B supplements and somebody um, rubbed something on my hamstring and careful that was." I think, gay.
0: yeah, um, I. Th- I don't think Sammy has fully acknowledged it, but McGuire did a few years ago. So this is my question how do which is relevant to what we're seeing in the world around us? How do you guys think we should handle fallen heroes? I mean, do you think those guys should be in the the Hall of Fame is, is Lance Armstrong, as the documentary put it, is he a good person? Who did bad things or a bad person who did good things? What do we do when our heroes fall from grace? How do you think I,
1: if you want to complicate it, I'd say that again I know almost nothing about baseball. But Pete Rose is a harder example, isn't he? Because right. those yeah. guys cheated at the game itself. And you know, there's somebody doing something that didn't necessarily affect what he was doing on the field. Should he be punished for his accomplishments? I think it's that's a harder case than somebody like Asosa or McGuire who cheated in such a way to give them a physical advantage that
0: potentially others didn't have. And it's hard because take those. I mean, certainly McGuire and Bonds and Roger Clemens, they were all sure they were all Hall of Famers. They were all going to be Hall of Famers. And now they're not because of what, you know, and the baseball is interesting because it has some language in in the voting that some sort of character clause or something. So Colin, how do you think of it with sports or otherwise heroes who fall from grace?
2: We don't have any heroes who aren't fallen, right? So, I mean, especially when we're looking theologically, if you're looking for your Martin Luther or your John Calvin or your George Whitfield or your Jonathan Edwards to be, pristine, you're going to have a lot of problems. It just isn't going to work. And that's why we have Jesus, the only you know, not fallen hero. Uh, So at some level as Christians, we should be able to deal with that. I think specifically, though, when I think about baseball, the tricky thing with baseball is that, I mean, one reason why people are upset about it is because it's a historical sport. If all of a sudden some technological advancement comes along, that Makes everything skewed. All of a sudden, the new baseline is seventy home runs, something like that. Then you just lose any ability to be able to compare somebody to er- in different eras, except if you have to use you know wins against replacement or above replacement, I should say, and, and and things like that, you know, compared to their peers. But I think that the challenge for me with baseball and why I've been against steroids is that I think when, for the record, th- I'm ad- against steroids also. There we go. Um, When you see somebody do it in a competitive environment like that, it really almost puts the burden of responsibility on everybody who doesn't do it. And that just really messes up the entire sport. And so while I understand that baseball has always included elements of cheating, I also wonder, there was a lot of pushback to what the Astros did in terms of surveillance. And I think rightly so. And I think it's for the same reasons. If everybody else is using surveillance against you, then you feel like to be competitive, I have to use it. And nobody's going to cut you a break if you say, yeah, but I was the only person who didn't use steroids, or I was the only person who didn't use um, surveillance. And so I think it's just an important part of baseball being able to keep the playing field level. Now, of course, we can talk about football, where there's always been widespread tolerance for performance enhancing drugs at some level. And I think in part because we don't expect football to be a historic sport. We want our athletes to ever be bigger, faster, stronger, and to be able to crush the men who came before them. So I think part of it just has to do with what you're talking about there. And some sports are easier to manipulate than others, right? Baseball's somewhat easy to manipulate. But I should say, not in the ways we always think of, because you pointed out right there with Clemens, pitchers were using too. So it wasn't just hitters. There were certain advantages for hit, for pitchers as well.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't, you know, the argument is it doesn't help you uh, have a better swing or help you with hand-eye coordination, but certainly you see the physical changes and it helps you endure a 162-game season. And as you said, baseball is unique because baseball is not nearly as popular as football or basketball now. But if you ask people... You know who has the record for most points all time in basketball? They probably say isn't that Jordan? Well, no, Jordan's what is he now? I don't know six seven. I don't even know. Kareem, does he still have the, the the point record? LeBron might catch him, but the the records in baseball are sacred. You know what I mean with home runs and RBIs and average, and it gets lost with some of the sabermetrics now. But that's why those numbers matter. And the Lance Armstrong one too. I mean, it's, it's a similar argument though. It was the wild, wild West. Everyone was doing it. Uh, you had to do it in order to be competitive. We're just the ones who got caught. But rather than just talk about sports, Justin, what about historical symbols? You know, right now, as we record this, we're seeing around the world statues being toppled, thrown into rivers, sometimes against the authorities, sometimes with the uh, the blessing of the powers that be, how do we determine which of our heroes, all of whom are flawed as we know theologically, still ought to have a place on our literal or figurative pedestals? Yeah, that's uh, one of
1: 10,000 issues where I would rather hear what you guys think, and then I adjust my point of view based upon your considered wisdom on such topics. And I don't have a fully formed uh theory or philosophy when it comes to public statues i mean we have to acknowledge i think what colin said we there are no pres- you know there's only one person who has walked on earth who is worthy of um uh, i can't say building a statue because we're uh, talking to a presbyterian here but yeah no statue so uh, worthy
0: <laughs> worthy of adulation. no movies no tv shows that no children's book or uh, yeah
1: another time. You can't even imagine him in your mind. Um, Yes. I mean, we we know that there's only one person who is perfect and worthy of infinite respect and everybody else is fallen. Uh, Everybody else is problematic. Everybody else has clay feet. It does seem like there are certain sins that disqualify someone from public honor and, and symbolic representation. And it's, It seems to me that it would be hard to kind of open up your computer, start a Microsoft Word document and enumerate what sins those are exactly and what sins are fine and what proportion. It seems like you almost have to have a a case by case basis. I mean, we can all think of people that no matter what they might have accomplished in terms of uh, science or progress for humanity, did so many terrible things, whether of a racist nature or sexual nature, that they're just not. It's not helpful. It's not uh, contributing to the common good. There's always going to be disagreements on those. So I don't know exactly how to sort through all of that. It's not, um, I'm going to say a black and white issue, and I'm not um, intending any pun there. It just seems like one of those complex ones. I think there's some that are easy cases, and there's others where if you kind of pressed me to have a fully formed theory of what—what what is your criteria, what's in, what's out, what's uh, acceptable sin, a respectable sin and what is uh, so problematic that it's uh, it's not worthy of being honored. And then it's different too, when you're talking about, you know, should we make a new statue for a person X, Y, or Z, or should we tear down a statue for somebody that or it already exists? So you guys tell me what to think. And then can I'll look Can we afford to be
2: somewhat case by case? I mean, I think it's hard to develop a hard and fast rule for every single case because some monuments, like we talked about last week, I'm very happy, statues, I'm very happy for us to take down. Other ones I'm very sad about. Kevin, is there any talk there in North Carolina about Fort Bragg?
0: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah, there's a lot of talk I mean, about that.
2: Yeah, part of part of what I part of what I'm trying to figure out here is that maybe if somebody hears Fort Bragg, they hear, oh, famous Confederate general. Um, you know, part of unifying the country or something like that. Well, as somebody reads a lot of Civil War, I'm thinking Braxton Bragg. Man, the Southerners hated him. He was awful. He was terrible. Basically, lost all the time. Why in the world will we name a a a military base after him, or John Bell Hood, Fort Hood in Texas? How does that make any sense at all? He was a terrible general. He got his own men massacred. He lost the battle of Atlanta. He lost the battle of Franklin. He lost the battle of Nashville. It doesn't add up. So that's what I'm saying on a case-by-case basis. I might stand in one case for a Winston Churchill and say, yeah, I get it. He's definitely not up to standard for us today. But certainly, we, we ought to be able to appreciate a lot of what he did. But I can't really find anything in brag or hood that we should be celebrating.
1: So does that mean if they were successful in uh, attacking the U.S. Army that they are worthy of honor?
2: (laughs) No, I'm just trying to evade that argument altogether to say something is strange here that we're not even celebrating successful Southern generals. We're celebrating unsuccessful, hated Southern generals. So it can't be about something of like nobility or popularity. It's got to be something more, I don't know if I'd say insidious, but more just awkward. I mean, is that we, we can't be taught, what we're definitely not talking about here is some sort of notion of Southern honor, I guess is what I'm trying to get at there, because these were not men who were held to honor. I mean, they were not held as honored figures, even in their time. So something else is going on there. It's confusing.
0: Yeah. So it is very confusing. I think statues, at, at least... Statues, well, it depends on where they are. I mean you could have a museum that is solely the purpose of remembering history, and that's a that's a different discussion. I certainly don't think we should erase our history you know as complicated and messy as it is at times, but statues in you know prominent places in parks and in rotundas there's no doubt they're, they're honoring someone or something so you know, some of the the questions I ask myself is, is this person a hero with flaws? That's always true. Or is the cause for which this person is deemed heroic itself flawed? So someone who is uh, heroic for a noble purpose, and yet it is discovered, I mean, what was the statue in in the UK last week, that was torn down because uh, his father, you know, was in made money from slavery. That that seems, you know, fundamentalist in the truest sense of the word, second degree of statue separation. So might we consider someone is honored and for the cause that was noble, be it of science or humanitarian in some way, and yet some aspects of their character was significantly flawed. Now, I think Justin's right. There there would be some aspects of character so flawed that would mitigate any other good of human flourishing. But then if we look at it as a Christian perspective, uh, I think it gets even more complicated because while our whole you know world largely would agree that you know racism or slavery or bigotry is is sinful and is a significant character flaw as christians we know that's not the only way to be dishonorable that's not the only sin so yes what if the the person had sins of anger or greed or sexual immorality then do we as christians insist that those persons ought to be no longer honored. So it becomes very complicated. Certainly you're right. It, it, it has to be a case by case basis. I think at least with, this, with the case of statues, at least there's some clarity that a statue is meant to honor someone. So we can ask the question, should this person be honored? What I find m- even a more frustrating and difficult conversation are the more ambiguous signs. So the whole discussion about kneeling with the national anthem and there's, that's become its own culture warrior flashpoint for everyone. Uh, now uh, a fist raise or kneeling or all of these things have their, their context where they mean something, but they're s- they can be so amorphous and they change with time and what someone first meant by them is lost. And then they become something else and someone else means something. that I, I find them to be some of the, uh, not that people don't have legitimate, strong opinions one way or another on some of those flashpoints, but I find them to be the most, uh, they do the least for our public discourse. <laughs> they generate more heat than light because what you mean by kneeling to the anthem is what someone else means by not kneeling, uh, vice versa or stand. So it becomes very complicated. And I think it's, uh, not usually a very profitable discussion with those more ambiguous signs. How how do you see it, Justin?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the flag one is one that when I don't hear people in my circles or church or neighborhood talking about statues and about, uh, military bases, the flag one, I'm surprised when I hear that come up, just the, I mean, that's so deeply embedded into our American psyche and to family members and to veterans that, that it, it's not even sort of for some people, a matter of debate, but inherently, you know, a college student who does that count, Colin and I were at the Nebraska Northwestern game. A few Nebraska players knelt. We didn't even realize it till we right. heard out in the news later. Um, I mean, you, you have, you powers that be in the state of Nebraska saying that the students should be expelled from the team. I mean, not even, Hey, here's an idea. Here's a suggestion. It's such a, an emotional flashpoint. So it, that to me feels like a debate where the sim, everything has symbolism, but the symbolism of the flag, what that means to people deep down is not just uh, a respectful sign. It's, I mean, people talk as if they were committing treason in and of itself and, and it's hard. I, it seems to me like the flag should re, be respected. I mean, we were all kindergartners in the Midwest learning to stand and right. have our hand over our hearts and say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. When you have that ingrained in you, and it's hard to separate that out from truth and righteousness and
0: goodness and justice and apple pie. And well, especially if the person kneeling, and it's and it's morphed a bit, but they say, no, I do respect all that. I respect our military. Here's what I I mean is, of course, I'm going to kneel because I think that the the country is guilty of injustice. And if you don't kneel, then you're complicit somehow in that injustice, or you just don't get it. Well, that's where I think, is it possible? I mean, that we can Agree, respect the military, respect the flag, be patriotic, injustice is bad. I know that's so simplistic, but it becomes this uh, absolute zero-sum game. The only way it seems like my point can be made is if your point is not made, and that is going to lead to greater and greater consternation in our country uh, of a dangerous kind.
2: Have you guys ever studied the the history of the American flag in church worship or in congregational worship? When did it come in? Yeah, that, that, I, I never have. I would love for somebody, alert to somebody who runs an evangelical history blog, maybe, um, maybe our friend Tommy Kidd. I would love to know the history of when did the American flag start to appear in churches? I mean, I'd just be interested to yeah, know. Where did that Christian that. flag
0: come from? Yeah, where I think I've seen something. Was that something the Apostles?
2: <laughs> uh, Paul designed that one. Hey, Paul designed it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, great, all right. Manners, uh, different, uh, different topic. One of the things that Justin suggested early on this podcast uh, off air was uh, maybe from time to time we would discuss a theological topic. We're going to get to books. It'll be our third segment. But there there aren't many podcasts just trying to give some good theological discussion on important theological topics. So I thought we'd spend a few minutes, and you'll see the relevance here, but talk about the Imago Dei. If you say it in Latin, you sound really cool. The image of God. Uh, Justin, where do we see this in the Bible? What does it mean? What is the significance of being made in the image of God?
1: Yeah, we get the image of God in the first few chapters of uh, the book of Genesis. And God uh, tells us that yeah, he created man and woman in his own image. Um, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then he talks about the dominion that they're supposed to have over fish and birds and livestock. And then verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blesses them, tells them to be fruitful and to multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. Um, And we see it uh, picked up in the New Testament uh, in terms of the image of Christ, uh, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ in the book of James tells us that uh, we should not curse a fellow human being who is is created in God's image. So uh, it seems like, I I think I first read it in Jack Collins' uh, work on Genesis, where he identifies three kind of big picture views of of how scholars have tried to sort through what we mean by the image of God. And he's got a nice little alliteration. And as a a Baptist-friendly contributor here, I like uh, three letter alliteration. So uh, man resembles God, man represents God, and then man in relationship with God. So on the one hand, you have the view of uh, image of God is about uh, man resembling who God is. Uh, The second one is more representing God, representing what God does, ruling creation on behalf of God. And then the third one, uh, often associated with Karl Barth, has man in relationship in terms of male and female, so um, in terms of God and, and others. So my own view is that uh, all three are, are present in the text, and uh, the representation, the relationship are really a consequence of the first one, which is more ontological, that that man is to resemble in some sense, uh, not God physically, of course, but morally, um, so we, we objectively have the image of God, and then we lose something at the fall and seek to regain it in Christ. Um, but there's another aspect that ontologically doesn't change, that we represent and resemble God, even if we are unregenerate and um, despite ourselves, we are still made in the image of God.
0: That's good. That's a great summary. Colin, what, what would you say and, and why is it important doctrine for us?
2: Well, I was going to say a lot of what Justin said, so he stole my material, which is not very not very helpful there. Uh, a lot of what I like to do doctrinally is to be able to put it within its historical context, its reception, its development over time. And specifically, I think it's so interesting here that when you're you're preaching through, you're teaching through Genesis 1, it's going to land on different people in different ways, in different times. So specifically, I think about the revolutionary effect of... of of female being made in the image of God and what that would have meant in so many different ancient, uh, ancient cultures, including Roman culture of the early church and how revolutionary that would have been. But our own church ran through Genesis this year, and you guys probably won't be surprised to know that there was a different aspect that was super controversial in our church about this passage, and it was that there are categories of male and female, that God created Two categories, two sexes, male and female. Both made in the image of God, not a spectrum, but two, male and female. I don't think that would have been controversial <laughs> to the Romans. I Don't think it would have been controversial to the Hebrews, um, but to the 21st century West, Your um, statue that required is going a to different be emphasis. Into the river,
0: Colin. Your statue <laughs> on with that remark. That's right.
2: Oh my goodness. So yeah, I mean that's um. It's just that that's what I think about the development of doctrine. It's why I think preachers, when they go through and we've done Genesis a couple different times in our church, when you go through, it's you're you're going to have different thoughts in your head. you're going to have different needs in your congregation. And so the image of God is a foundational doctrine that will pay pretty remarkable dividends in terms of its application in a wide variety of situations. And so any doctrine I mean we we produced last year. Uh, curriculum with LifeWay at the Gospel Coalition written by uh, written by Mike Cosper called Imago Day, And part of what we were looking at was the way it can unify such disparate, well, situations that are disparate in our political environment, but ought not to be, biblically speaking. Things like the dignity of, of people made in the image of God of every tribe, tongue, and nation and then also at the same time, including those um, the the, you know, the weakest among us, those children in the womb, and also people at the end of life and things like that. So a doctrine that can be applied to racial unrest and to abortion, and at the same time to COVID and how we care for the elderly. I mean, that's a that's a really important and helpful doctrine uh, that I think deserves a, a lot of emphasis. And I think I mean I, w- I don't know. Kevin, you're the expert here. Um, I don't want to put you in a position to have to play historical theologian, but I wonder, has this doctrine always been appreciated the same way? Has it always been seen, or is there any times in history when it's kind of come to the fore in any particular way? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, it's changed quite a bit. I don't think in ways that are uh, have to be mutually exclusive, but you know, a lot of the Reformation... Theologies, I mean, they don't spend as much time on the image of God as more contemporary theologies may with all of these issues in mind. And there certainly has been a significant shift toward the relational aspects of the image of God. So for, I think, most of church history, the emphasis, uh, certainly through Aquinas and many of the reformers would have been on the structural aspect of being made in the image of God and would have seen that to be in the image of God is to to be rational, to be a free moral agent, to have the capacity for worship. and i I don't think we should completely lose that though there are dangers there. What if you know it is a is a human person who um, is of such an impairment or such an age that they don't at least display those right. abilities for rational thought? Are they no longer made in the image of God? We we would want to answer that question. No, they still are made in the image of God. So whereas it used to be a, a, what distinguishes us from the animals, uh, it's moved more toward uh, then toward the functional, what it is that we do, the the ruler aspect, we have dominion. And now you know, given our time more toward the relational aspect, that we are, that we have, we're a reflection and a connection of God. That's what it means to be made in the image. I think there's something to all of those. I think we have to be careful with if if we go back to the structural image for those reasons. But we can certainly overemphasize. It's always good to be aware of our own time and proclivities to overemphasize the relational aspect to the detriment of. If you want another R, I'd say. The image of God as rectitude, that is, as as moral uprightness. Uh, one of the, the recent books on the image of God by a uh, professor at Trinity International is titled Dignity and Destiny, that the image of God gives us dignity as human beings, and it also points to our destiny. What What is God's intention for us as human beings? Actually, The the imago dei is much less precisely defined in scripture than we would like and whereas the emphasis on dignity is certainly true and you can go to psalm 8 what is man that you're mindful of him and just the order of creation where the crown of creation all of that about dignity is true and significant yet it's not mainly what the bible stresses when it talks about the image of god and looking back through the new testament we have to say there's a difference between us made in the image and likeness of God, but we are not the image of God. That is Jesus Christ is the image. So our, our destiny, the intentionality, God created us toward the end that we would be like his son. So the image of God is not just a static thing that you have, but it's what you're to grow into. That's why I think if we're really to teach people, robustly the significance of the image of God. We need to tell them, yes, this means you have intrinsic worth and value as a person, no matter how small, no matter your age, no matter your mental acuity, no matter your skin color. And at the same time, it also speaks to God's intention for your life, that you are to be renewed in the image of of Christ to become more and more like him. So you you can say the image of God in one sense is is a loan that we squandered. It's also a gift that we retain. It's also a deposit that God wants to see mature and then it's an inheritance that we're going to receive. Uh, in fullness for Christians at at the end of time. So it says something about who we are. And just as importantly, it says something about who we ought to be uh, made in the image of God. Any other thoughts, Justin? I think that's really helpful
1: to, to lay out. And it is... I think, uh, a truism of theology that if you emphasize one aspect of the exclusion of the others, you often end up in um, theological, even ethical problems there. So I, I really like how you laid out that multi-orbed way of thinking about it, because it's tempting those of us who are pro-life uh, to so emphasize the objective image of God uh, and not and to see it only as something that is static and rather than something dynamic. And I I think there's something laudable and something important about that. But if you only kind of bring that construct to the pages of Scripture, once you get to the New Testament and you're talking about a conformity to the image of Christ and uh, the Son being in the image of the Father, um, I think you just don't have categories then to have a, a more robust biblical theology of the image of God.
0: And in the ancient Near East, they, the the king, the suzerain, would put an image of his likeness in his land. And it was to represent that this belonged to him. It was to indicate that this is his possession. He has dominion over it. And so we are placed in the world to say, this belongs to God. This belongs to the one in whose image we are made. And he has given us dominion over it. I do think it's important and countercultural. Uh, whatever good there there can be in environmentalism, or certainly in stewardship of God's creation, uh, a lot of important things there. The Bible is unapologetically; it is not a a biocentric text in the sense of just life generically. It is an anthropocentric text. Now it's all it's more than that. It's a theocentric. It's God, but. The the crown of his creation is man, and we are stewards of this creation in a way that supports the flourishing of human beings. Now, that can be abused, and you say we're going to uh, just you know pillage the earth because it's good for somebody's bottom line. That would be an abuse of the doctrine, and yet it's important for us if we do believe that men and women are the crown of God's creation and that the storyline of Scripture is not ultimately about the newts or the salamanders or the trees. We believe that all of creation is renewed, but it's those things pulled into the redemption of all things as they long for the revealing of the sons of God to be redeemed. There is a profound anthropocentric uh, reading of the text that I think is Really, the the way that the Bible story is told, with humanity and God's redemption of it at the center of the text. Colin, any last word before I bring us to some books?
2: Uh, you don't hear too often about Genesis nine six anymore. One of the applications of the image of God.
0: Why capital punishment?
2: Yeah, well, I, was just, I mean, we need to get into that whole argument, but. Kevin, what would just give a brief explanation for them? That's one of the first immediate applications. And just to your point right there, killing man is not the same thing as killing an animal. God has different expectations, different requirements there.
0: In Genesis, those first chapters, there at three turning points, you have reiterated the image of God, which is significant because we don't you don't hear a lot about it in the rest of. The right. Old Testament. So right. it's there in Genesis one, it's there in Genesis five. Right. And then it's again in Genesis nine, by man's blood he'd been shed, so that uh, because mm-hmm. you are made in the image of God, so you face capital punishment. So I I, I do believe capital punishment is biblical. Now it's a, you can always debate on is it carried out in a way that is equitable and and fair, but as a principle, it's eminently. Biblical, and it may seem counterintuitive, but it's because human life is so valuable, the argument of chapter 9, in the image of God, that the punishment for those who unjustly snuff it out is for themselves to lose their life. That is one way to uphold the honor of the image of God in man, is to say this is so sacred that you face the supreme penalty if you deface it in this such a serious way.
1: And I alluded earlier to, to the book of James, but it's James 3.9, where he says um, about the tongue, we, we, cur- we bless our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he doesn't elaborate, but I think the, the implication there is, what in the world are you doing cursing somebody who is is an image bearer? So you have not only Genesis 9 with the ethical implications of the image of God, but also James 3.9 where it impacts how we should talk and how we should look at a fellow human being that they are image bearers and therefore that has ethical implications upon how we talk and about how we act and how we treat other people
0: great good okay here's what we're doing now as we transition to books there's no segue it's not related but this is a topic that three of us have talked about before some recording somewhere and the gypsum mines somewhere is is our Previous discussion about this topic, and we're going to revisit it several years later. But we're all readers. We're also all writers, and we also read a lot of writing, some that is good, some that is not so good. I want us to talk about good writing. Maybe we'll talk about some bad writing, but the entree into this discussion, and let's limit ourselves to this question to think about Christian writers of nonfiction. Give me some of your—I want to say favorite. I want to say who you think are exceptionally and the skill of writing. Now, hopefully, they're also what they're saying is is good. But good Christian, because there's a difference between someone who may be have a lot of good insights but somewhat workmanlike or a sort of writing that doesn't really soar but is still helpful and technically. You know, very useful, somebody's dissertation or something, but good writing. And w- while you're thinking of that, one of the reasons I think this is so important is uh, I'm of the conclusion that good writing is one of the most underappreciated aspects of what makes a Christian classic become a Christian classic. So uh, one of my answers is, is certainly C.S. Lewis. He's not the most influential person for me, like he is for you know, one of the most influential people for a Piper or a Keller, but I certainly learned from But he's undeniably a very gifted writer. And there's a reason why generations later, people still read Mere Christianity, which began as a series of radio addresses, because it's such good writing, the, the way he talks about a poached egg and the way he l- lays out liar, lunatic, or Lord. It's good writing. He doesn't just say really pedantic like now listen there are three options that we may have when we consider christ first of all he may be a liar second of all now that may be a fine for a lecture but he writes it in such a way that it's very good writing and and i think one of the reasons we keep coming back to certain authors is they have such a punch and a vitality to it and we don't always insist upon it in our own day but it's a very underappreciated, overlooked aspect of what makes a good nonfiction Christian book, and that's the quality of its writing. So, Colin, who would you say, past or present, are some very good Christian writers in the writing itself?
2: That is a good, good question. I need to give myself a little bit more time to think about it thoroughly, because I don't I think people get confused as to what they mean by good writing. So you've done a good job of laying that out. Sometimes I think people imagine that it's being very colorful um, or that it's being ornate or that it's being kind of complex of, of what we imagine to be literary. Right. And Purple prose.
0: Yeah. Over think, the top.
2: Uh, yeah. And there's and there's some people who can pull that off and there's some people who imitate it and can't pull it off. Um, I will this is, this is off the top of my head and I can give this more thought, but the people I tend to appreciate are the ones who write in such a way that engage. I mean, I forget that I'm reading, I guess is what I'm I'm getting at there. I forget that I'm reading. I'm just, I'm drawn into it. And I'm going to mention two colleagues who I think do this really well. So I'm going to talk contemporary and maybe i think it over a little bit more and come back to historical ones but two who and do this then really Justin,
0: well i mean come on you don't, <laughs> other
2: you don't have to other
0: than the Colin, two of you okay, all right.
2: <laughs> <Apparently>. this <laughs> is a on. long preface to say you guys um i'm going to mention sam Alberry and matt Smethurst. um matt does not um publish enough hint matt um listening to this podcast. The man is a
0: genius at Twitter. We,
2: we get to, but the reason he's a genius at Twitter is because he, uh, he has a sense for what is going to cut through the noise. He knows how to, he is one of the best writers I know at communicating popular information, or at least to, uh, communicating at information at a popular level. And we, we've got him working behind the scenes. So anything that you appreciate at TGC, he's edited. Um, but that is really one of his amazing gifts. And you can see it come out in his tweets. You can see it come out elsewhere. Um, but that's that's Matt. And then Sam. Um, Sam has such an interesting, compelling story that you might think he would fall into the trap of memoir. And that's not always a bad trap it can often be really good. but Sam I just I just get engrossed into his presentation of a topic I, I get I get drawn into his world of of understanding and neither one of these guys I mean the kind of work that I am trained in and that I write is is basically journalistic. So I'm not an expert in in literature and things like that but that kind of journalistic communication and those two guys are absolutely excellent at doing that. And I'll, I'll throw another one. And this is going to, going to sound, uh, it's not, I mean, like, a anyway, you know, backhanding or just complimenting people I work with, but Megan Hill is also exceptionally good as a writer when it just comes to simple clarity. And maybe that's what I'm getting at that. I think the point of writing is to be able, not always, but to be able to teach, to be able to persuade and to be able to, illumine a topic and those are three writers who consistently do it well um and but they're not going to win awards as as being like best writer because they don't seem to fit the criteria that like a festival on faith and writing or something like that might look toward
0: right justin what do you say Yeah, I think it's a great question,
1: and the three of us are thinking about this all the time, I mean, just by the very nature of our jobs and being writers and being editors and being readers. Uh, So from the past, I know that J.I. Packer is still alive, but I'll categorize him as sort of a 20th century evangelical figure. Um, Packer is a great writer, and... Uh, a distinctive writer he's got a voice uh, he's got a style a style that would be very difficult I think to imitate but he's a bit like CS Lewis I think in the in his in his clarity in his use of imagery in his use of just the right word in his use of syntax that is not always predictable it never seems like he's showing off or trying to be cute or trying to be clever Um uh, our uh, pastor at our church just started preaching on Ephesians. So I picked up a couple of Ephesians commentaries and uh, got off of Amazon, John Stott's Ephesians commentary, I've just been dipping into it. And you just have to read like one sentence of Stott or one paragraph you realize like every word matters. Everything's clear. You don't read a sentence and say, now what did he mean by that? Or I have to reread that sentence. You never have to reread a sentence. He's just unbelievably straightforward and clear. And uh, you get the sense that he's he's read an enormous amount. He's thought an enormous amount. And then I think one of the signs of good writing is that it just seems effortless. You imagine these guys just kind of sitting down and it just kind of flowing which is not usually the case. Um, I think clarity is is at the foundational level. You can you can do lots of fancy things. You can wow people, but if you're not clear, you're not a good writer. And we can we could do a whole podcast episode on academics who have international reputations for brilliance and can't figure out what they're saying or you feel like you've got to have a PhD in order to figure it out. Or pastors
2: who are great preachers who can't write. They might be very clear in the pulpit, but they cannot be clear on the page or on the yeah. screen. It's, so
0: that is so important. And it goes both ways. I mean you just pastors have to I hammer this to myself and to my students. It is a very different means of communication. And you can be a good writer. And if you write and then you you preach from that and you've written for the eye, it sounds very stilted. And if you just turn preaching into prose. That's what Lloyd-Jones did, and he, he had very strong convictions that he wanted to sound like sermons, and they do sound like sermons, and he edited his books so that they're readable and we benefit from them. It, they work because he was such a good preacher, but as writing, they're very repetitive, and they're they're not going to win literary masterpieces, but they still have the force and the punch of, of a sermon. Uh, I was going to add to the list, certainly G.K. Chesterton. I mean, he was... His books are like a stream of Twitter before there was Twitter. I mean it's just almost every sentence is some epigrammatic. It's just sometimes it's almost too much you think. That sounds better than um, than maybe what it says, but uh, orthodoxy, the everlasting man, I mean his mystery, he was he was very gifted with the turn of the phrase.
2: Now there's a wit there. There's a that wit I don't humor. think would necessarily be characteristic of even a lot of the favorite writers that i have who are very clear it's hard to be clear and witty it's like try again like like trying to be funny in the pulpit if you can pull it off great
0: most people can't most people can't um you know contemporary i think carl truman is a very good writer he seems to do it quickly effortlessly i think uh russell moore can really write with a power and an eloquence behind it I find David Wells, you know, oh, great, is, is really great. a very good writer, theological, social commentary. If you haven't read David Wells, read David Wells.
2: Kevin, is the reason that I like Wells so much? I don't read a lot of systematic theology and I find it very difficult and tedious in many cases, but I'll read anything from Wells. Is that just because I love how he fits together culture, history, sociology, theology together and infuses it? I'm assuming that's the case, or is it a writing thing with
0: him? It's both, in and in, in British, British by way of uh, Africa, yeah, right? But he's I, he gives you the payoff, and we need both of those kinds of writing. We need the, the very technical systematic theology that I find invigorating. That's what that's one of my jobs, uh, but you need the kind that are giving you the payoff, and you need the R.C. Sproul that are giving you as clear as possible. I think J.C. Ryle from the 19th century uh, for clarity and simplicity is a very good writer. Uh, Calvin, of course it's hard whenever you're you're dealing with somebody through a translation, not reading Calvin in the French and in the Latin, but uh, he was an accomplished rhetorician and his his style is much easier and much more eloquent than in Edwards might be. And then, uh, I mean, Don Carson is, A very good academic writer and has the ability to write, uh, you know, world-class commentaries that you're still underlining and have a little bit of his, you know, personality and humor and put downs come through and his popular stuff is, is well-written. So, you know, we're going
2: to do a podcast at some point of Don Carson book endorsements.
0: We will, and we will. Don, if you ever listen to this, one, I I don't know why you are, but two, don't waste your time. Yeah, don't waste your time. You know, finish the commentaries. <laughs> we we need them. They're so they're so well done. Um, y- you guys both read a lot of writing, and I'm not asking you to un to reveal uh trade secrets, but you you read bad writing, you get from from um, submissions, maybe from people who's, by the time we see them, it's good writing because you've worked your magic. What are some of the characteristics of the bad writing that comes across your desk? Justin? I think the
1: first thing that comes to mind is really what Colin was saying earlier. And this is in terms of the effect. This is not in terms of the technical things Um, but when I'm looking at a proposal I'm reading something, I mean, this is not a published book. So everybody out there who is listening, 90% of what you're reading is it's already been vetted. It's been published, whether it's online or it's in a newspaper, uh, or it's a published book. So we're reading a lot of unfiltered things that, you know, maybe we're the first people reading it. And there is such a distinct difference between being carried along and feeling like you have to push along. You know, the the difference between saying uh, supper's ready and I need to get going here and I really don't have time to do this, but I can just do one more page or one more paragraph or I'm almost done versus, uh, oh, I just, this is like uh, painful to work my way through this or I have to keep pushing my way forward. So good writing is like when you're uh, walking through an airport and you get on one of those magical little moving sidewalks and you're walking, but it's kind of carrying you twice as fast. Uh, other writing is like pushing your luggage through the airport. Uh, so I, C.S. Lewis talked about uh, a, a good writer is like a sheep herger, and the, the reader is going to get like a sheep veered off the road one way or the other, and you need to make them go where you want them to go. I think that's one thing. Um, I think lack of clear thinking is another one. You, uh, you can have all the all the bells and whistles, but if you aren't thinking logically and building your argument in such a way that your terms are clear, that the steps actually follow, that they're supported by evidence. uh, A lot of times people... People will not like writing, but they don't know how to identify what's wrong with it. And hopefully that's where an editor can help and say, here's, here's what you're doing wrong. You might be writing things so much in the passive voice that it feels like things are happening to the subject and the subject isn't actually doing things. Uh, so lack of clarity, I think, is a huge part of it. Uh, lack of imagination, lack of uh, the empathetic mind where you're putting yourself in the mind of the reader who has not been thinking about this subject for years and years and hasn't read everything that you have read. Uh, so those are some of the things I think that can go wrong for writers.
0: Justin, what, what percentage, and this could be a question for you too, Colin, I'll let you answer the first question as well, but uh, can you put a percentage on well, the work that comes to you? It all needs to be edited. The best writers, I mean, C.S. Lewis, or who said, you know, there's no writing, there's only rewriting. Most everyone is always in editing, part of great writers know how to edit themselves. What percentage comes to you and is, you know, it's already really good and you need an editor to fix some typos and make a few suggestions and what percentage of it needs a lot of work yet in the sausage factory?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. and I don't know exactly how to quantify it. I think most of the time, the proposals that we are greenlighting, we are happy enough with them that it's, you know, they need some massaging and they need uh, some help and working through it. It would be much more rare that we would receive something that would say, you know, this is a really great author, a really great subject, but it's going to need a lot of developmental work. You now, I would, I would put that more in the the 5% category, perhaps. But there's a huge spectrum between that and something that, you know, has just been meticulously copy edited before we even see it. And even something like that, that can be technically free from typos. That doesn't mean that the argument holds together. There's not weaknesses or uh, distracting elements to it.
0: Colin, you probably see more writing in a very raw state. What, what, What does bad writing look like in, how often are you and your editors having to do a lot of work to get things presentable?
2: Well, answer the latter question first. We don't... um, I I learned years ago when I was the news editor at, at Christianity Today that you just don't have enough time in journalism to be able to rewrite people's work. So if something comes in and it's unusable, you're better off just cutting and going somewhere else. Also, interestingly you might often think that somebody's proximity to an issue is what will make them good at presenting something. But the fact is good writers can do just about anything, whereas somebody who is an eyewitness or some sort of an expert in something does not mean that they can do a good job of talking about it. So so we don't do... I mean, if something comes in and it's totally unpresentable, we don't really do a lot unless that person we wouldn't rewrite something certainly unless that person is the only one who can tell that story. They're the only one that, you know, that their name attached to it is what makes it work. Um, So those are rare occasions, but usually we're, we're trying to cut, we're trying to simplify, we're trying to use active voice. We're trying to help with organization. There are a couple tips I want to share when it comes to, to bad writing. I, I think the, I think the major challenge is that is organization organization of your thoughts is why books are harder than blog posts and things like that. So um, there's a reason that with the amount of volume that's published on the internet today, you see so many listicles also Q and a it's because it's a foolproof uh, formula or for organization. Um, And almost anybody can write introduction point four points, three points. Something like that. Almost everybody can do that.
0: Seven ways Uh, to make your marriage better. Exactly. Six ways to walk your dog. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, and also it's not only is it helpful with organization, but it's easy to browse and the internet is a browsing medium in many cases. And also it's just people kind of know exactly where they're going in the article. So they'll, they're more likely to click on it in the first place. Um, And then the the, the Q and A format it's just really easy. I ask you a question, you answer and they keep it short there. Uh, the difficulty comes in, the longer it gets. And, you know, certainly when you come into books and things like that, that's where the writing kind of the, the wheat and the chaff will be separated in that process. So yeah, I mean, way more than half the battle is organization. Well, one, having something to say, and then two, organization. If you've, if you've achieved those two things, you're just about there. Uh, the rest of it, an editor can help you with. But, but ba- I mean, bad writing is going to come into place where somebody doesn't have anything to say. And if they did have something to say, they don't know how to organize it in a way that, they can, that other people can latch on to. So, but thankfully, one benefit to being an editor where we publish a lot of material is that if people want to know how to get published with us, they have a standard that they can look at. And they can know it. Well, if it doesn't match that standard, then why would they be submitting it to us? And it reminds me of how, you know, I paid a lot of money uh, to study journalism in college. And I got into a magazine class in my last year, magazine writing class. Remember magazines when they were around? Um, and the professor said, all right, I'm going to tell you the secret. Read and imitate. Yeah. Read and imitate. Okay. So find whatever somebody can help you understand is good writing and then do that. And then find somebody to tell you how bad you are and don't compare to that. And then keep trying.
0: It, it's very hard. I mean, it's a, uh, I don't want really to say great just for anybody listening. Those went by quickly, but those are really,
1: really important. Yeah. points. Go yeah. ahead. Kevin. Sorry.
0: No, I was, I was going to agree with him that I, I am always trying to find a way to help people write better. I do a, lecture for one of my classes on, on writing. And uh, I tell my students, I, say, I don't know what other professors say, but for your, your final paper, I am going to grade you on writing. I know there's some that just say, I just want to see you get the content. I'm going to say, no. What does it matter as a pastor if you have content and you can fill in the blank on a test? That's fine to test you for knowledge. I want to know how you can communicate this. So I'm a stickler with word counts And Colin's surprised by that because we're now past an hour here, but it is important for writing. I tell them, I will not read your paper if it's over, you know, 2000 words, 500 words, because you need to learn how to say it and to say it in in a specific allotted time. It's very difficult to teach people how to write and, you know, about the best advice is just what you guys said, read a lot and write a lot. If you're not reading a lot, you won't pick up vocabulary and tricks and things that you just start to imitate. And if you don't write a lot, so I tell people, if you're when you're writing, try to write well. I use punctuation in emails, in texts, even in Christmas letters. When you're writing, practice writing well. I think I agree with all of what you said. Clarity is king. Organization. I'd also add that in bad writing, the writer expects the reader to do the work to to bridge the gap. So I find that in a lot of writing, uh, a lot of students writing, think, "Mm, you used almost the right word. That's almost the right preposition. And I know what you mean to say, but you're making me stop and think about it. I'm sure this is what you're trying to say. And rather than, like Justin said, getting on the people mover so that it's very clear what you're saying. And it's, it's easy for me to understand, uh, from a technical standpoint, I'm sure, you know, as editors, cutting words, you know, murder your darlings, simplify, uh, helps. And often people put weak verbs at the end of their sentences instead of saying, you know, Colin ran to the bank. One of the things that is often true about Colin is that he, and you put the is or the was after a big, huge setup that doesn't need to be there, and put your verb at the very end. So there's lots of technical help we can give people, and yet it really is a matter of reading a lot and writing a lot, and it's to serve one another. It really does serve. It helps communicate truth. As Christians, we're in the truth business. And uh, to have our own voice, have our own style is certainly helping communicate the truth. Last question. Do you have off the top of your head any good books you'd recommend on writing? Okay. I'll give you two because I knew I was going to ask the question. There's lots of them out there, but Strunk and White, Elements of Style, that's an old classic. And I know some people hate that book because of it, but I had to read it in college. In fact, I had a professor who said, uh, and it was just a religion class, he said, you have to read this book. It's a little book on style and common writing mistakes. He said, if I see more than five mistakes, thing rules you're breaking from Strunk and White, um, I will hand your paper back. Now, I'm not sure he actually did that or who would want to be that tedious to go through and find those. But it it did get the, commu- the the point across. Read this book, pay attention to these rules and uh, try to imitate the good advice. Another one that I benefited from, Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark. It, it's very well-written. You know, If you're going to write a book on writing, it has to be well-written. He follows his example. He gives lots of examples of even his own writing in the book of how editors helped him make his voice more active or shrink the word count. And there's lots of really Pithy, good advice, writing tools, Roy Peter Clark. Justin, books on writing that come to mind? Yeah, one that comes
1: to mind is Helen Sword's uh, Writer's Diet. Uh, She's out of the University of Chicago Press, I think, published the book. And it's a short book. It has, uh, I think it's organized around five Ways to make your writing uh, more active and more compelling and and more clear. She's also even got a a little uh, writersdiet.com or something like that, where you can enter your prose into a little window and it will tell you based on her five metrics where your writing is flat or flabby or or what have you. Um, William Zinser's on writing is a classic that everybody refers to and is clear and is enjoyable, and he gives examples, you know, from even his uh, earlier drafts of the book on how it can be improved and how it can be edited. Uh, Stephen King, I mean, is it called On Writing? I can't remember what the exact title is. Colin think there is On Writing Well. Right. Uh, do you remember the name of the King one? I think. On Writing Good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on Writing Gooder. Uh, right, more so, gooder. If it's Stephen King, it probably has some profanity in it, but I remember reading it. And just, there, there are certain books that you read for kind of the technical proficiency or the know-how, or the steps. Stephen King uh, is a good one in terms of uh, stepping back and thinking more philosophically and, and hearing somebody who just loves the writing process. Um, Brian gardner has got an app, uh, is a big book, but on American usage, modern American usage. And any serious writer should probably have access to that app. Or talks about the the correct usage, um, so th- those are a couple. I, I would echo with the Strunk and White. Even if you move on from Strunk and White, something I didn't say earlier, you have to know the the nuts and bolts of grammar. It's like somebody going out and trying to imitate Michael Jordan's uh, crazy shots. If Michael Jordan didn't know how to do that, in, unless he learned the fundamentals, and the grammar is the fundamentals of good writing so if if you don't know the difference between the active and passive ways you don't know how prepositions work um, you don't know about subject verb agreement uh, you can be brilliant with metaphors you can know a lot of things you can have a lot of passion but without that kind of grammatical baseline your writing is just not going to be clear and communicate effectively
0: Colin any suggestions
2: you guys covered them I, I I prefer to read writing than to read about writing so but you guys cover the ones that I would recommend
1: let me just add one more quick thing to that. Not only you guys have mentioned, I think the importance of you have to read good writing, but I'd also say if the next level beyond that is to figure out why is this an effective paragraph? Why does this sentence work? Colin's right. You get into great writing. You're hardly even aware that you're reading. You're being carried along. But if you could stop, go back and say, now why did that sentence grab me? Why could I picture that in my mind? What's the author doing there? Take it apart See what techniques they're using. See how they could have set it in a in a more flat, prosaic way. So I, I think there's that's another level of seeing why a writer is good, not just that they're good.
0: I did a a blog post uh, several years ago on the power of the poached egg, where I just pulled apart that paragraph from C.S. Lewis and tried to explain mere Christianity why that works. Partly it's the metaphor, you know, it's about liar, lunatic, Lord, and you'd be a madman on the level of a poached egg. I mean, that, that's, that's funnier and wittier than you'd be a crazy man or even saying a lunatic, I mean, a poached egg. That's just a, it's got a punch and it's funny. I sit in there, you know, he could have said beluga whale. I think that would have worked well, but there's certain things. And you follow that paragraph. He varies from short to long sentences. One of the rules of thumb and good writing is the, the more, the less serious your subject, the more playful you can be with it and almost show off your writing. And the more serious the subject, the more you play it straight because the subject itself is carrying it forward. And, and Lewis had a real knack for that kind of sense. And above all, this is probably the most important thing, is you need to understand the difference between an M dash and an (laughs) N-dash. Back to that one we are. That will, yeah. I mean, it's hardly even worth reading those writers who who can't understand the difference. Just for anybody
1: listening, Kevin, how do you do that like on Microsoft? What what, I mean is there like a shortcut? Well,
0: there there is like a a a dash like the little dash dash space. But here's the thing, you know what? I use word perfect. It, Wait, it, I use what? Word Perfect. I do all of my Now I I use Word because I is can't, that a thing? I can't communicate with still? people in the real world, but I still use all of my sermons are on Word Perfect. It still exists. I still have a new version and I believe it's better than Word. Yes. Well, well, I mean that's
2: Word's not perfect. I mean, but Ha-ha, Word Word Perfect
0: is <laughs> <It's, laughs>
1: Who would you get Dude Perfect to sponsor this episode? Yeah.
2: Well, then my tune would change. Colin, <laughs> Suddenly, you, when's the last time you used WordPerfect,
0: overlords? Have you ever used WordPerfect, Colin? Not since the 80s. Well... Not since I was in
2: elementary school. Colin, who even... Who even...
1: Who owns WordPerfect? Corral. I think I went from typewriter to Microsoft Word and skipped over WordPerfect in between.
0: I'm pulling it up right now. You can't see it, but it's really I got all my sermons on here. Corel, I got Word Perfect eight. I probably need to get a new version. It's got some next time I mean we, could be, we have a whole episode. I could really tell you some nice Coral, do they also make like a features. cookware? Different different people. Oh also different than the office guy. Oh. All okay. different <laughs> Okay. I I just Okay, we have we have hit all of the high points. Thank you Justin, thank you Colin, thank you for Justin's phone and hotspot for making this all possible. We look forward to joining. You. Hey, last thing, if you've made it this far, just know we're we're listening to the feedback that we're getting from our legion of listeners and we are hoping to uh kind of launch a season two later this summer and have some improvements with some show notes and to get the books out there written down so you don't have to be feverishly writing them down maybe some timestamps so you can skip over all the parts that you don't like where we're talking about things you find boring we are hoping to re-up for a 2.0 so bear with us as we go a couple of more weeks here in this season one as we call it And then Lord willing, is season two, and we'll try to continue to improve. Thanks for being with us. Until next time, love God, glorify Him, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. See you next time.